Episode 2 of Poem Life, Snake Creek and the Origins of a Poet. My first memories come from a time when my parents, two sisters, brother and I, lived in a tiny house on Snake Creek, south of Locust Grove. Most of my poetry has some sort of foundation in that house, that yard, the woods beyond it, the neighbors, and the creek a half mile away that ran over a low water bridge. The water flowed over the low water bridge after rain so forcefully that I was afraid to cross it, but in the summer, if you wanted to get to the other side where you could walk into the creek, you had to cross it. One side of the creek was a steep ravine with no access to the water, and the other side was a wide shore of rocks that turned into grassy stretches where the mothers could park their cars. If mom didn't take us to the creek, we would ride our bikes there. It was only about a half mile down the road from our house, but if the water was too deep running over the bridge, I wouldn't cross it on my bike. I pictured my bike going horizontal and me crashing over with it into the water and then swept down the creek and away where the water and the creek bed just wound someplace I didn't know. Now never mind the water on the current side of the bridge was never more than waist deep. The thought of losing control in the middle of that water was enough to keep me from it. The whistles under the road that took most of the water across were also scary to me. All kinds of creatures must live in there. Never mind that the water flowing through them kept any algae from growing and tree limbs and other debris rarely got stuck inside for any creatures to live or hide in. We're going to the dip, we'd holler at mom when we took off on our bikes. There was never any better word for this swimming hole than that. The word plucked from the yellow highway sign posted in front of it that declared dip. If mom wasn't with us, we were forbidden from swimming on the deep side of the bridge. Here the creek water did not flow so swiftly and instead created several pools deep enough to dive into from one of the roots of the sycamore trees bending over at the water's edge. The water on the deep side was more blue than clear because of the depth, and snakes were frequently seen darting in and out from the creek bank beneath the roots of trees and fallen branches. But I don't remember anyone ever getting bitten there. On the shallow side, we could play in the water all day long, catch minnows and crawdads, write mysterious words and drawings on the flat rocks with pieces of slate that could always be found. We would swim over to one of the whistles and then let the water flowing through it carry us downstream away until we got to the bend in the creek where the water was still or too shallow. Then we'd lumber out, our keds full of water and rocks, and head back to the swimming hole. When I think of my earliest memories from childhood, this is one of them. My memories are not of specific days, but of specific places and people populated in those days. I have very few memories of actual days, and I'm suspicious of people who do. The house we lived in near the dip was a two-bedroom with a small front porch that had a railing made up of circular pieces of wood. It looked like a row of lollipops. We called it the lollipop house. My two sisters and brother and I all shared the house's second bedroom where we had two sets of bunk beds. 
Most everything I can remember from this house involves the creek, the woods behind it, and the living room where we got our first TV and watched dark shadows to scare ourselves silly in the afternoon. In the living room, there were Ray Price and Jim Reeves records in an end table, and I would make playhouses out of the album covers. In the woods behind the house was a large kind of sinkhole that was at least 10 feet wide and 15 feet long. We routinely filled it with leaves and dove in it over and over again. We played a game of burying one another and then becoming zombies to come back to life to scare the survivors. I have never figured out what the hole could have been or why it was there. One birthday, Mom devised a treasure hunt as one of the party games, and my love for treasure hunts began. I remember following all of the clues and getting to the final one before anyone else. The prize was a little troll doll hidden behind a faucet in the well house. The only negative memories I have of the lollipop house involved my sisters, Roxanne and Kelly. We had a huge cellar that Dad and Grandpa had built when we first moved to the house. And one day, Roxanne and Kelly told me to lock them in it for a few minutes, just on a joke or a dare, and then I was supposed to come back and let them out. I forgot about them. After a few hours, my mom asked where they were, and I remembered and Mom hurried out there to let them out. They were both crying and screaming and very, very angry. The other memory is of Roxanne in a pink and white terry cloth robe, which had been made from an old towel. She was standing on the kitchen counter one morning. Dad had already gone to work, and Mom was in the bedroom. Roxanne was trying to get some cereal from a shelf, and she accidentally turned on the gas burner on the stove and managed to get the end of the robe in the flames. Again, Mom came quickly. Roxanne also stepped on a needle that was in a shag rug and invisible, and I remember the six of us piling into the station wagon to take her to the doctor with that needle sticking straight out of the arch of her foot. I also remember the Tupperware party my mom had which occasioned cookies and punch and things we didn't normally have around the house in abundance, like uh, peanuts and little mints. I gorged myself on the devil's food cookies when the ladies weren't looking. Later that day, I vomited in all, all of them up near the well house, about 20 yards from the house. All of these memories have made their way into my poetry, partly because they are vivid and somewhat dramatic and partly because there's a visceral truth to them. Sensory experiences that shape us and stamp their lessons in our bodies from a young age. Poetry is a way of putting those experiences into words, of taking the physical sensation of puking devil's food cookies into the grass and saying, here it is what it is like to overindulge in something. To describe the wet leaf mold smell and slimy feel of the sinkhole where we played back from the grave games and say, what it is like to laugh at the thought of death. The cellar experience. What it is like to betray someone. The robe on fire what it is like to be helpless in the face of danger. The dip, what it is like to experience joy, 
and also what it is like to lose control. The treasure hunt, what it is like to solve a puzzle. By the time I was 12 in 1974, and we moved from this house to one in the small town of Locust Grove, I had experienced everything that would ever appear in my poetry. I imagine this is true for all poets, and also true is the fact that these childhood memories are not generally something we write about when we are children, only when we are adults. These memories shaped me as a poet, but they were not the stuff of my poetry until I was well into my 20s. I've definitely not had any kind of unique or traditionally book-worthy life. This podcast will not reveal shocking details about my life. It's been fairly ordinary and routine. I had a happy childhood with no trauma, a good marriage for a time, a wonderful son and family, good work, plenty of leisure time. I've loved well and many times. I've had a lot of solitude in my life, and I have usually enjoyed it. Poetry has been with me through all of these years. The cliche that traumatized people become great artists and writers may hold some truth, but I think us average folks can take a turn at it too. A wise woman, Cynthia Jones, once told me, Sean, you cannot not be a poet. I believe I've known this from a very young age and have never been able to escape the fact, whether I wanted to or not. I have a yellowed piece of notebook paper that I date from 1975, mainly because of the large, loopy handwriting that I had as a preteen. There's no date on it, but it's fairly typical of a young person's poetry. Someone who's beyond the silliness of grade school poetry, but not really ready to completely tackle the emotions that are rampant in high school poetry. The poem is short, so I will quote it in its entirety. It is called, Peace. The sea sleeps as the fish eat, and the seagull squall. This is my world. This is a four-line poem. It's written in faded blue ink, and each cursive letter is perfectly formed. Looking at the page closely, I notice that the two periods seem to have been added later. The one after squall is too close to the last L, and the one after world is also too close, plus in much darker ink than the rest of the poem. Also, while the word as has been capitalized, and was not. Also, seagull has no S on the end of it yet I treated it like a plural noun. The poem is written on the first four lines of a notebook page, and then the rest of the page is taken up with a very bad sketch of the sea and some trees that look like trolls. There are no seagulls, or seagull, in the drawing. So, what am I saying? Beyond the fact that my poetry career started out As the typical mundane stuff of childhood, I also treated poetry differently from prose, so I knew I was writing poetry as something separate from other types of writing. I didn't have traditional capitalization and probably no punctuation, 
until I added it at a later date. And I was focused on imagery, albeit very basic imagery. I was writing in poetic lines, though also in complete sentences, a habit that has characterized my poetry even today. What poetry had I read at this point? Quite a bit, actually, as textbooks used to have wonderful examples of lyric and narrative poems that were a routine part of one's education in the 60s and the 70s. Years ago, the Locust Grove High School retired librarian, Joanne Bennett, gave me a copy of a book she found that had been mine. A Long Story Trails was the name of it. It was a language arts reader, copyright 1962, the year I was born. But stamped inside, it said Title I, 1967 to 68. My name is written in large blocky cursive with a giant curlicue to the ending S that loops up over the N in Perkins. This would have been a book I had in 1970 or 71 when I was in the fourth grade at Locust Grove Elementary. It includes poems by Carl Sandburg, Lewis Carroll, Shakespeare, T.S. Eliot, Vachel Lindsay, John Keats, John Shardy, Robert Frost, William Carlos Williams, William Wordsworth, and many more. Dead white men for the most part, but great poets. The William Carlos Williams poem on page 299 is one that I distinctly remember, though I'm sure the illustration of the cat climbing out of the jam closet and into the pit of the empty flower pot is what has helped me remember this particular poem, which has, as the editor's note, word pictures painted for us. I also had to smile when Joanne first gave me this book back, and I flipped through the pages and I saw the illustration accompanying John Keats's Meg Merrilies, a deceptively light piece about a gypsy woman living in solitude upon the moors. The two-page illustration covers the middle with a mountain, fir trees, and a woman, all in shades of brown except for the old red blanket cloak she wore. A crescent moon is the sky on the left side of the page, and on the right appears to be a line of lupins or hollyhocks. The poem celebrates Meg's solitude, whose only book is a churchyard tomb. And this is a quote. Her brothers were the craggy hills, her sisters larchen trees. Alone with her great family, she lived as she did please. I'm sure that illustration and poem appealed to me then as it appeals to me now. I was a solitary child, even though I had many friends and also played with my brother and sisters. But I could spend hours alone in my own fantasy world. I loved to be outside, driving into the leaves in the zombie pit in the woods, playing at the creek, riding my bike anywhere, building bug cemeteries in the backyard, creating elaborate roads and highways in the dirt in the front yard that our matchbox cars could travel on. Poetry went hand in hand with this solitude. Yet when I wrote that little four-line poem piece, perhaps my first poem, I didn't use my own experience in the imagery. 
I've never been to the beach. I don't know what a seagull looks like in person. Not then, I did. I was going for the theme of solitude, however. I turned to a place seemingly much more poetic. Looking through all the poems in my old anthology, I find that none have anything near the kind of average flyover state setting that was all I knew. We were poor and didn't travel, but that was also true of most of the people I knew. One time our high school basketball team had to travel 35 miles north to play a small rural school. Coach Allen saw a sign that said, Kansas, nine miles, and we all got excited. And he drove the extra nine miles just so we could say we had been to another state. We jumped off the bus, briefly ran around in a circle on Kansas land, and then got back on the bus and went to our game. There are two other poems and one play in this book along story trails, whose illustrations spark memories for me. One is a silly version of Robinson Crusoe's story by Charles Edward Carroll. And the other is Johnny Appleseed by Rosemary and Stephen Vincent Benet. Both of these men, Robinson Crusoe and Johnny Appleseed, they were loners, one by choice, one by chance. In the Johnny Appleseed poem, there's a verse that says, Of Jonathan Chapman, two things are known, that he loved apples, that he walked alone. Apples are my favorite fruit. In the Johnny Appleseed illustration, he looks like a happy old hippie with a pink and red flowery shirt, patched jeans, a brown leather satchel, and a black vest. He does, of course, have the traditional metal pot upon his head, though it looks pretty darn comfortable. I love the story of Johnny Appleseed, and to a lesser extent, that of Robson Crusoe. Who wouldn't want that kind of freedom? Being totally unfettered from family commitments, work, or institutions of any kind. I'm sure I saw peace in the way these men were able to live, one of them by the sea. The play in this book is the one that holds the real physical memory for me. It is a dramatic version of the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin by Van Kissen. The, rem uh, the reason I remember it so well is that Mrs. Landis, our teacher, whose name is also written in the front of this book, had us perform the play. I don't remember which character I was, probably one of those only named as girl or second woman, but I will never forget the girls who were the mice, particularly my good friend, Joni Yates, who wore her construction paper mouse ears and nose with great glee as she's led off to her death, which was Mr. Speaks's room at the end of the hall. And I wanted to be the Pied Piper, not a harbinger of death, but a person who lived alone and could come and go as she wanted. As in all versions of the story, the Pied Piper rids the town of rats by enticing them with his music, and they follow him out of town and to a river to drown. But then the mayor refuses to pay the piper. In retaliation, the piper, the piper plays a tune that forces all the town's children to follow him. Now there are some versions of this story where the children who followed the Pied Piper out of town are brought back to the townspeople. But this version has them going away forever inside a mountain. 
As typical of the children's literature of the time, a moral had to be attached. The mayor says at the end, quote, People of Hamlin, today we have been taught a lesson that we shall never forget. How costly a broken promise may be. Let us write this sad story so that others born after us may read it and know that a promise given must always be kept. Did that moral make as much of an impression on me as our fourth grade staging of the play or my wistful longing to be a Pied Piper? Perhaps I've always been one to keep a promise and I can be ruthlessly unforgiving to people who don't keep theirs. A Long Story Trails is divided into six sections, with each section containing both poetry and prose, except for one section that is entirely made up of poetry. So this book has more poetry in it than any other kind of writing, and I don't think that that was atypical of readers from the time. Which means I read a lot of poetry as a child. I knew what it looked like and it sounded like and some of where poems come from. The natural world was definitely tied to the impetus to write poems. In a verse by Hilda Conkling, which introduces the poetry section, she says of poems, quote, they have wings. When you are not thinking of it, I suddenly say, Mother, a poem. Somehow, I hear it rustling. From poetry, I learned that truth could be expressed in small lines and with an economy of words and punctuation, and capitalization could be non-standard. I also discovered in poetry a model for being alone, the desire for solitude that has driven my life, at the same time, the need to improve the lives of others has ridden in the passenger seat. <laughs>